0: Take your take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah in chapter 7. We are taking a break from our study through the book of Acts. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And it's been a, a thrill to see the Lord's work in the early church as he exploded through his word and through the power of his spirit as the apostles preached and were carried along as the church exploded on the scene of the ancient world and has progressed and grown since then. The um, the reason for the break is uh, because the book of Acts is really focusing on, on that one theme, the, the growth of the church in the first century and the, the power of Christ in growing his church by his word and spirit. It's a wonderful theme and worth focusing on week by week for as long as it takes to get through it. Uh, the trouble is... Um, when you do work verse by verse through a book like that, which has one major theme, that the power of that theme, the majesty of that theme can sometimes be lost. And uh, in, in sin we are tempted to um, water it down and not take it with the full impact that it deserves. So we're going to take a break. We've got up to chapter 19 and uh, we will come back to it, uh, Lord willing, and start with chapter 20 and the farewell address of to the Ephesian elders. And uh, we may take most of this year off uh, the book of Acts, because I've got a couple of series I'm wanting to do. So this morning I'm wanting to start a series in the book of Isaiah, and I was uh, not sure exactly what to do. Isaiah, is, as you know, is even bigger than the book of Acts, and it may be that uh, I was binding off more than I can chew. And I also was in two minds, because I really wanted to look at Christ Jesus directly. Uh, I wanted to look at a gospel portion as well, and so I thought, well, why don't we just combine the two? And we'll look at the gospel of Christ Jesus from the perspective of the apostle, uh, of the prophet Isaiah, writing fantastically 700 years before Christ comes, and yet we have so much information in the book of Isaiah about who Christ is, about his virgin birth, about his uh, divinity and his humanity, about his gospel, about his kingdom and how it would come and how it would progress, about his death, his atoning death on the cross, about his resurrection, about his mission and inclusion of the Gentiles, all of these things prophesied and predicted by the prophet Isaiah 700 plus years before Christ came. And that is a mighty truth to hold in our hearts. Uh, now, that'll be probably about 10 weeks. We'll focus on that. And then I'm actually going to, after that, start working our way through the book of Romans. Romans. We won't get through all of Romans. We might do the first four chapters and then come back to the book of Acts uh, probably next year, Um, Lord willing. So, uh, a lot of churches have a Vision Sunday. That was our Vision Sunday for the year, by the way. Okay, very quick and succinct. So, if you would turn to this glorious passage. Uh, We are focusing on this passage because it is the, the first major... A mention of the Lord Jesus Christ in prophetic form. Here we have that glorious uh, verse that you will be familiar with in chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that because that's what Matthew says. In his uh, retelling of that and his uh, communication of that. Now, that's very familiar to us because it is often read at Christmas time. It's a very common uh, passage to read and reflect on uh, at the time where we remember the Lord's coming. Uh, what is far less familiar to us is the original context in which it was spoken, in which that prophecy was first given uh, to be fulfilled 700 years later. See, we think. Uh, when we hear that, that uh, verse, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son. We think of uh, Christmas time. We think of uh, you know, Christmas lights probably around the background of Joseph and Mary hearing this, uh, this message for the first time. This is the message given to, to uh, uh, this is on the back of the vision that Joseph had in Matthew chapter 1 and then Matthew's comment uh, interpreting that to us. Uh, We think of uh, Santa Claus in the background, maybe. But none of that, of course, is uh, relevant not to the context of uh, the first century, and it is even more far removed from the original context of Isaiah and the situation that he faced. Uh, 700 years earlier, there was um, not so much a happy time with angels and presents and Christmas carols being sung. There was uh, strife, civil strife and warfare Uh, between uh, nations, and especially within the nation of God himself, between Israel and Judah. Uh, This was a time of sin, it was a time of idolatry, it was a time of judgment, it was a time of war, it was a time of exile. And Isaiah is speaking into that time, giving encouragement, giving the sign, the sign of Emmanuel. And so let's turn and read together then Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to start at the beginning of chapter 7 and give you a bit of a run-up to the verse that we will be focusing on, the verses we'll be focusing on. So it begins, uh, Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Now, I just want to make another comment on the context prior to this. The king, King Uzziah, has had a long and flourishing reign, a reign of relative peace, And you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 6 we are told that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah had his incredible vision of God sitting on the throne, and that is significant. The king who reigns so sovereignly, the king who has kept Israel in relative peace and security for so long, has now died, and conflict is on its way, but in that very year that he died, there is a vision of the true king. The true King sitting on His throne sovereignly, watching and overseeing the whole thing, and the glorious vision of the uh, robe filling the temple of the holy of, uh, of the uh, seraphim singing, "The holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts," and so on. That is what has just happened, and now we come back to a historical scene of Isaiah speaking to uh, the who was basically the next reigning king. There was a uh, a brief reign of Jotham, the uh, the son of Uzziah, before we come to Ahaz. But this is just setting up the scene for you. So in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, who had a short reign, uh, who was the son of Uzziah, who died king of Judah. Uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, Come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with uh, Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest, uh, as the uh, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz. You. And uh, Shear and Jashep, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps or fire bricks. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and let us uh, set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then he, that is Isaiah, said to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word. Lord, it is not always apparently clear and it is confusing at times and there are names and places and dates and so on that are needing to be studied and considered carefully. But Lord... The message of your word, of your blessed son Jesus, the sign of your love for this world, your love for your people, the sign of Emmanuel is clearly presented here. And Lord, I pray you give me the strength and the clarity and the the grace I need to make that plain to your people. Lord, press it upon our hearts that you have given a sign and that sign is sure and that sign is Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you in his name. Amen. So I'm going to just have four headings. If you are taking notes, we've got the context, the offer of the sign, the refusal of that sign, and then the sign itself. So first the context, the offer, the refusal, and then the sign. So looking at the context then, as I said, Isaiah is speaking into a context where the people of God are deeply divided. The two, uh, the two nations... Uh, that belong to the people of God. The Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom have been split for at least 200 years now and the division has grown uh, in terms of animosity toward one another and they really are coming to the head of that division where in fact civil war is about to break out and is breaking out between the two nations. The Northern Kingdom uh, is larger than the Southern Kingdom. Israel is uh uh, priming itself for attack they are stronger they are more financially um, uh, capable they are far more wicked and far more willing to rebel against God's law and against God's people and what's more is they've now teamed up with Syria Okay, Syria uh, is the country surrounding the, its capital Damascus just up to the um, north uh, east of Israel and they are a major power at the time. They have teamed up and now they, they are on the border of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem being on the border between the north and the south kingdom. The current king is in a tough spot. Ahaz, he is responsible for uh, looking after the city, looking after his nation. And he is in a great deal of trouble. Now, this would be okay if he was a good king, if he was a strong king, if he really believed in the sovereignty of God, if he was following God's law, he could have a great deal of faith, a great deal of trust uh, in the fact that God was going to be on his side. This is certainly not the case. This is an evil king. Ahaz, let me just give you a list of his sins. You can read about them in uh, 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz has essentially abandoned worship of Yahweh. He has set up idols around the land for people to worship foreign gods in the Baals. He has, in fact, even sacrificed his own children to the Baals. He has even gone to the nation of Assyria and copied their worship and copied their altar on which they sacrifice whatever it is that they do. And brought it back and put it in the temple. So he's replaced the worship of Yahweh in the temple with the worship of the Assyrian god Uh, And he has done this in large part in order to get uh, Assyria on side. So you've got Israel and Syria combining against Judah, and you've got Assyria over here, the big mighty power, which, as we know through history, is going to eventually take out Syria and Israel. And uh, Ahaz is trying to have them on side. This is an act of idolatry. It is an act of abandonment, of uh, covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Uh, He is too... Uh, He is called to have his faith in Yahweh alone, and he has abandoned that in order to ask help from unbelieving nations with all of the strings that are attached to that. And it proves, of course, to be folly because Assyria, after they take out Syria and Israel, come all the way down and have a good go at attacking Judah itself. Okay. So Ahaz is in a very tight spot. But God, in his grace sends to Ahaz a prophet, the prophet Isaiah, to come not to gloat over his situation, not to tell him of how sinful he has been, or even to call him to repentance, though that would all be very appropriate and would be done at other times. But this time Isaiah is sent in order to give this very clear and very encouraging message to Ahaz. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Syria is not Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Rezin is not the head of Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. And within 65 years, Ephraim uh, will be shattered from being a people. Verse 9 The head of Ephraim is Samaria, not Jerusalem. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. The son of Remaliah is not the head of Jerusalem. And then this warning, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah comes to him uh, and says this to him in verse 4. He says, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Now, that's in some ways missing the full strength of what's being said. Uh, What Isaiah is really telling him to do is to sit down and shush. (laughs) Stop fussing, stop stressing, stop worrying, stop being anxious, and stop blabbering on with your generals about how you're going to align yourself with Assyria and defend this city. Be careful, be quiet, and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two. And here's the mockery of God to the uh, armies that are coming against Judah. Do not fear because of these two smoldering stumps and firebrands. In other words, their fire has burned out almost. They're not blazing a flame. They're not this burning torch that's going to come and burn you. They are a smoldering stump. They are a firebrand. Do not be afraid of that fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you. That will not stand. And he says, uh, in not many years at all, the people, uh, these two peoples will be destroyed. Can you see the grace of God? Ahaz is not following God. Ahaz is not faithful to God. Ahaz is not repenting for his sin. He's not worshipping God. He is running to other gods, worshipping other gods. He has abandoned God. And yet because he is the representative king and the leader of God's people, God sends the prophet with a message of grace and love and assurance that God's covenant faithfulness will prevail. I think there can be a tremendous encouragement that we can take from that. That God's grace towards you is not dependent on your record, but on his covenant faithfulness. God's grace towards you is not dependent on your record or how well you've managed to not sin or whatever it might be. His faithfulness to you is on the basis of covenant grace purchased by Christ Jesus alone. Now it doesn't stop there. The grace of God towards Ahaz in the promise of deliverance Then there is this offer, and it is an incredible offer that God makes to Ahaz. Let me just read uh, the first couple of verses of this offer. Uh, Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Now again, this is probably the same day, the same encounter, but it might be a slightly later encounter, but it's to do with the same event. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and this is what God says, and this is incredible. Ask a sign. Of the Lord your God. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, ask anything of the Lord your God. Now, a sign had a purpose. God was trying to press upon Ahaz the truth of the promise. Give a sign that what I've just promised will take place. That you will be delivered from these two nations that have gathered against you. Will be fulfilled. My promise will be kept. You will be saved. You will be rescued. Ask a sign of me and I will prove it to you. Ask anything you want. In the heavens or as deep as Sheol. And I will prove to you my covenant faithfulness. Can you see the grace of God in that? Not only a promise... But I want you to know this promise is true. I want this to be pressed upon your soul, that you might truly be able to take care, to be quiet, to not fear, and to not let your heart be faint. You see, here's the thing. God is not simply giving commands that we cannot obey. If you have got an army surrounding you and God is saying, I just want you to not fear it is quite difficult for the human heart on its own to go, Okay, I won't fear. God gives the power and the capacity to fulfill what He has commanded. He gives you the grace you need in order to obey the command to be at peace, to be at rest. And when God commands us to be careful, to be not fearful, to be quiet and to not let our hearts be troubled, He gives abundant signs. He gives abundant grace. He gives abundant capacity that on the basis of that, we might say, yes, it will be so. And he has indeed given us a sign, which we will be talking about in just a moment. The amazing grace of God. God wants his people to not only hear the promise, but believe the promise. To not only hear the word, but believe the word. God makes, takes effort to press upon us with certainty and with confidence his plans for us. And, you know, a hundred years later, when uh, there'd be a new king on the throne and there would be another army invading the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah is the prophet uh, on the scene at the time. He gives this incredible uh, assurance to the people of God. He says... Uh, This is God speaking through Jeremiah. And you know the verse well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God wants his people not just to hear the promise, but to believe the promise. To know that he has a good plan for his people. Regardless of the physical circumstances in which his people find themselves. This Uh, This assurance and this desire for assurance carries on into the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 3.19 That you may know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. God wants his people to not only hear the promise, but to know the promise. 1 John 5 and 13 I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you not just to hear it, but to know it. And he is willing to press that upon you. So I ask you, do you know it? Do you really know the promise of God? You've heard it. Do you believe it? Do you know it? This is an immense thing. that must be. Now you might think to yourself, well, I'm, I sort of know it, but I haven't had a very good week. I've been very sinful. Well, let me tell you this. You haven't been as sinful as has. You haven't sacrificed any of your children in the last few years. You haven't set up idols all over the nation in order to distract people from the worship of God, and yet God comes in the uh, prophecy of Isaiah and gives this phenomenal and incredible offer that he might know the promise is sure, that he might know the promise is true. It is a tremendous offer of grace. Now he could have asked for anything. Can you imagine being in Ahaz's situation? You hear a prophet of God say this. The prophet says, "Ask anything. Ask a sign. Anything as high as the heavens. Oh, you could you could ask for Yahweh is King to be spelled out in the clouds. You could you could ask for lightning bolts. You could ask for as deep as Sheol. You could ask for the dead to be raised." You could ask for the children that you sacrificed, who you probably miss, I think. You could ask for them to be raised to life again. Ask anything. The sign that the Lord's promise is sure. And the great tragedy of this this moment, this sacred moment, where Ahaz is having to make a choice, the great tragedy is that he refuses to take God up on his offer. He refuses to ask... For a sign. Let me read then verse 12. But Ahaz said to. Said to Isaiah. He said I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. This is Ahaz's refusal. Ahaz's response. Now that's a very interesting response. I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds almost like he's being pious, like he's being righteous, right? Like he's, he's uh, trying to be obedient to God's command. After all, uh, Deuteronomy six sixteen, you shall not put the Lord to the test. That is commanded. But here's the thing. If the Lord is commanding you to ask for a sign, it's not a sin to ask for a sign. It is a sin not to ask for a sign. This is not just some crazy guy, some random guy coming up to the king and saying, hey, why don't you ask God for a sign? This is the prophet of God, Isaiah, coming before the king, speaking with the authority of God, the very words of God, and saying, ask of me, and make it deep, make it high. I am going to show you my covenant faithfulness. I'm going to prove it and demonstrate it to you, my covenant faithfulness. So when Ahaz says, I will not put the Lord to the test, what's he doing? Is it true piety? No, it is It is a false showing of piety. It is an act of hypocrisy. His refusal is not at all piety. It is sin and disobedience to God who is trying to demonstrate most profoundly and most plainly his covenant faithfulness. He is hiding his sin behind a show of righteousness. I think most people know what that's like. You don't want to uh, fully admit your sin. You don't want to recognize your sinful status before God, and so you kind of hide it behind shows of righteousness. And you know what? If you want to make God weary, <laughs> hypocrisy is the way to do it. Isaiah says to him, Here then, O house of David, this is who Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ahaz is representing the house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men? And he's talking about himself, I think, the the prophet. Weary with this stupid hypocritical response. Is it too little for you to weary men that you must weary God also? If you want to weary God, be a hypocrite. You know, if you're an open, blatant sinner, I think there is greater hope for you. Because at least if you are owning your sin, there is opportunity for repentance, right? Right? At least if you are owning your sin, there's no danger that you're going to be leading other people astray into your sin. If you're owning your sin and recognizing you are a sinner, then you're not going to be dragging God's name through the mud as people observe your sin and think that you're actually following God. That's what happens in hypocrisy. And I think this wearies God. The dishonesty that we have sometimes with our own states and our own sinfulness. God, who is slow to anger... And abounding in steadfast love somehow manages to get to the anger a bit quicker around hypocrites. You know, it's interesting that Jesus was far quicker to anger with the Pharisees, wasn't he? Than with the tax collectors and the sinners. Because they were the hypocrites. They were the ones who were hiding their sin. But I want to just consider then why would, why would Ahaz uh, deny his, this request or this command? Why would Ahaz not take God up on his offer for a sign? It would seem like a really good thing to do. Oh, great. You're going to prove it beyond any doubt that you are going to save me, that you're going to save this country? Great. Well, here's my sign. But he says, no, I won't do it. Now, scratch my head over that. Most days this week, wondering why on earth... He wouldn't take God up on his offer. And I think this is the answer. I think this is why he didn't do it. Because if he had asked for a sign, and if that sign had been granted, then he would have had no choice but to believe and submit to God, submit to Yahweh and to his promises and to his plan. So he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for these grand signs in the heavens and on the earth, as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. And if it had been done, he would have been without excuse. It would have been plain to the whole nation, to all of his officials, to his army, and especially to himself, that God really was sovereign and capable, and he did not have to go after Assyria for help, and he could well trust in the Lord. But he would rather... ...find the aid from Assyria... ...than have to bow the knee to God. This is the craziness of sin. This is the insanity of sin. See, God... ...is not reluctant... ...to show His love. We are reluctant to see His love. Because if we see it... ...we'll have to respond to it. You hear what I'm saying? God is not reluctant... ...to show His power... We are reluctant to see his power, because if we do, we have to respond to it. We God is not reluctant to display his light. We hide from the light and prefer the darkness so that we can keep our sins. Glorious text in uh, John, in chapter 3. I want to just read chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works are done, uh, have been carried out in God. There's a sense in which the whole world is like Ahaz. God calls them to taste and see. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. They say, no, I don't want to. Because what if it tastes good? Then I'd have to come. Then I'd have to submit. Then I'd have to give up my sin. Then I'd have to bow down and worship you rather than myself. This is the insanity of sin. It makes no sense and yet it's what everybody does and it's what you did and it's what I did until the grace of the Lord saved us. This is like a um, its like a patient refusing meds because they don't want to admit they're sick. It's just insane. We would rather have the sickness. We would rather have the sin. We'd rather have the self-sovereignty and the self-determination even though that will destroy us. Now at this point, and this is is just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, at this point you would think God could wash his hands of Ahaz, could set him aside, could set the whole people aside. But instead, God does something quite different. God, after promising deliverance and having it be ignored, after promising a sign, ask any sign, any sign, and having it rejected. And even God is almost accused of wrong, that he asks, that He tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Well, I'm not going to put God to the test. It's God who's asking you to do it. After doing all this, instead of giving up, washing his hands, shaking the dust off his, uh, off his feet, rather God comes to him with his own sign. This is the context for verse 14. Here, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you must weary God also? Therefore, in response to all of your sin, all of your rejection, all of your hardness of heart, all of your stupidity, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign to the sinful world that God is going to fulfill His covenant promises is Jesus Christ. The sign that God has a plan, has a purpose to redeem, to save, to rescue, no matter what armies are at the gate, no matter what coalitions of Satan may be uh, assailing against the people of God, there is a sign that is given. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sign of God's covenant love, God's covenant commitment, God's covenant faithfulness. And it is the sign that God is with us and not against us. Now, this is an incredible sign. An incredible sign. You know, they wouldn't have known in the time that this was first said that this was speaking about Jesus. We know a lot more about Jesus than his ministry and so on. But they would have known some things about this child, about this sign, which would have got their attention Had they been watching? Had they been listening? This child is obviously going to be very special. This child is going to be born of a virgin. How many children are born of virgins? Not many. This is a special child. This is a miraculous child. This is a child that will not be brought about through the works of man. This is a child who will be given a gift of grace by God himself. A miraculous child. You know, the... uh, this isn't in my notes. I'm just going to try and do this from memory. But there are so many instances through the Old Testament of barren woman giving birth—you know, woman who couldn't have children. It's because God is preparing the people for this one truth: that deliverance and salvation does not come through your effort or your ability. It comes by grace and grace alone. And this is the ultimate display of that. Not only is Mary, I mean, she's not actually barren, but she's in, in some ways worse than barren. She's a virgin. She hasn't had the, the normal process required to have a baby. Not even that has happened. And she is with child. It is an immense gift of God's sovereign grace through no work or intervention of man. And that's an important point. A miraculous child, a divine child, A child who was very special would be raised in the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Notice this child, what he eats. He's going to eat curds and honey. What is the land supposed to be all about flowing with? Milk and honey. So this child will be born in this land. You're not going to be kicked out. You're not going to be driven out. This child will be born in this land. The land will not be overtaken. The land will be there when this child is born. Curds and honey were also a royal food. It was a special food for uh, the king's children. This would be a kingly child who would reign, who would rule. Actually, in chapter 8, we're not going to read the whole thing, but in chapter 8 and verse 8, it talks about the Assyrian army coming and invading um, Judah eventually. Not taking them over completely, but they would come up to their necks, it says. So It says this in verse 8 of chapter 8. And it will, this is Assyria, it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its uh, outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. You see that? This child that will be born will be the owner and the keeper and the king and the sovereign over this land. In fact, there's a sense in which he is already. Assyria will come and fill the breadth of your land O emmanuel and then verse 9 i'll just read this bit of chapter 8 be broken you peoples and be shattered give ear all you far countries strap on your armor and be shattered strap on your armor and be shattered take counsel together but it will come to nothing speak a word but it will not stand for emmanuel For God is with us. You see that? This child, this sign, is an immense sign. A very special child who would deliver, who would reign, who would save, who would be a sign from God. I think probably the most comforting thing is the name. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Ahaz would not have grasped the full sense of that uh, that name, that word, God with us. In fact, in its full sense, it literally means God has come to be with us. God is here with us. But it has another meaning, which I think is really the focal point of this prophecy: that God is for us. That God is with us in the sense that He's on our team. He's on our side. That he is not against us. And this is the sign to prove that to you. The sign of the virgin who will give birth to a son. The sign of Emmanuel. Of course, is not just a sign to Ahaz. The sign of Emmanuel is a sign to the whole people of God. That God is for us. That God is is with us given as I said 700 years before the sign would be fulfilled and the sign would be fulfilled one day an angel would come and speak to the virgin Mary, notice that it's not only Jesus being prophesied in this passage but it is the virgin Mary as well the text doesn't just say a virgin will conceive, it says the virgin will conceive Mary in the Old Testament This is uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. It says, And the angel said to her, to the the virgin Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel, said, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Matthew adds his glorious comment, which we have read a number of times. That this is the sign. The sign that God is with us. Now, yeah, I don't know if you've ever asked God for a sign to prove to you his love, to prove to you his faithfulness. This is the sort of thing that happens on TV sometimes, right? People ask for a sign, you know, show yourself to me, whatever it might be. I sort of feel like maybe reform people don't do that very often because maybe we're afraid of Deuteronomy 6, you know, don't put the Lord to the test, which is probably true. You shouldn't really ask God for a sign. Uh, But I don't know if you've ever been tempted to. I think I have been. And I can imagine many people would be. I mean, you do want to have confidence in the one that you are putting your faith in if people are making a decision to follow God if people are making a decision to trust God to uh, connect themselves to God you know, in in the normal way of things if you're going to connect yourself to somebody if you're going to put your faith in somebody you would ask for some sort of sign or you would look for some sort of evidence that this person is worth trusting and putting your faith in but let me ask you what greater sign could God have done to prove his love and his faithfulness to you than to give you his son to live and to die for you. What greater sign could you have asked for if you were standing there in Ahaz's shoes and you were asked by God to come up with a sign and your heart was ready and willing to come up with a sign, you would not have imagined a sign as high as the one God had in his mind. You would not have come up with anything even close to the sign that God had and was preparing to bring as a demonstration of his covenant love and faithfulness to his people. Not even close. The Son of God, God himself in the flesh, coming and living for me and dying for me and rising for me and reigning for me forever and ever. You wouldn't have even dreamed of that sign. And yet that is the sign that God had ready to display on the earth of his covenant love and covenant faithfulness. Jesus is God's great sign to his people that he is for us, that he is with us, and they don't come any higher, and they don't go any deeper. The enemy may be at your gate. It may be the two largest armies. It may be a coalition of Satan, sin, death, and hell. All against you and against your soul. And God has given you a sign of assurance. The sign of Emmanuel. That God is with you. You know the New Testament capitalizes on this. Paul particularly in Romans. And I just want to read two verses as we finish. Paul wants to take this sign. The sign of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And press it upon your soul, that you might be sure of his love for you, despite all circumstances. Let me just read this. This is Romans 5 and verse 6 onwards. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he applies this truth. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because you've been justified, because Christ has been given, how much confidence can you have that you are rescued from the wrath of God? That's his point. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? You see what Paul is doing? Because Christ has come, because Christ has died, you can have assurance of God's covenant love and faithfulness, even, a great, even in the face of all enemies and all difficulties, One more verse from chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do you know you have all things? Because you've been given Christ Jesus. Because God has given you the greatest of all things. And how will he not now with him graciously give you all things? Salvation, life, all things working together for your good. Forgiveness of sin, resurrection of the body, a cancer-free life forever and ever and ever in the presence of God. Death no more, tears no more. Proven to you by the greatest sign that could ever be conceived. The sign of God's own Son, Jesus Christ, coming in the flesh. May that minister to your soul. May you think about Jesus Christ as God's message to you of covenant love and faithfulness. If you would put your trust in Jesus Christ, you become part of God's covenant people. And you can look to the cross and the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the evidence that no matter what enemy is at the door, your own sin, Satan, the world, hell, everything, will not prevail against you. Because God has granted the sign. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do just thank you for speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only in word, but in sign. The signs that he performed that demonstrated who he was and his identity and his divinity and his power. But the sign that he was in and of himself. The sign of Emmanuel, that God is with us, that God is for us. Lord, may we look to him and be encouraged. May we look to him and be careful and be quiet and be peaceful and be without fear and without our hearts being troubled, though the enemy be at the gate. Lord, may we be these things because of him and for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.